God is good. What he does is always right. And that's something that uh, we do well to always remember. We face challenging things sometimes in life, and there's been a lot of challenges with church life in the last number of months. But God has a purpose, and we are here to fulfill his purpose. Challenging message here this morning. Covet your prayers. Huh? Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verse 49. It says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So here we have Jesus telling them, that they need to, before they go out, before they preach, before they do anything else, they're to wait in, in Jerusalem until they receive. In John, it says, the promise of my Father, and in Acts, it says, the promise of the Father. So what is the promise of the Father? What is it for? What does it have to do with us today? And I share with you my heart here this morning is that I'm thinking if we're looking at one of the central, one of the essential, one of the more important teachings of the church. And at the same time, perhaps one of the lesser understood teachings of the church. And so that's why we have a challenging message here this morning. And we're going to see as we look into this topic that faith is a key element to understanding what the promise of the Father is. And so an important factor for faith is to understand. You cannot have faith in something you don't understand what it is. Okay. And so the more we can understand what it is, I think the more we can apply the principles that work around that. I want to tell you something else this morning. Any of you that are Bible scholars or, or enjoy studying the Bible, in the New Testament you'll find the word promise 57 times. Okay? And I'd like to suggest this morning, putting aside 2 Peter, and there's also a verse in, in Acts 23 and a couple of verses in 1 Timothy, 
Other than that, we're looking at about 50 times where you find the word promise is talking specifically about the promise of the Father. So there's lots of promises in the scriptures. God has given us lots of promises, but we're not talking about all those promises. We're talking about the promise or the promise of the Father here this morning. And I uh, have found in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to turn here just shortly, the Starting at verse 14 on down to verse 29, we have a lot of time together of, of principles here. And I love this passage, and I've gone over it many times, and I love this topic. And I've shared it this morning because it's important to me, and I feel it's important to the church. And I'm excited to be able to share this morning. Galatians chapter 3, turn with me there. Do you have... The word promise here at Encounter comes up about nine times just in this passage. And there's a couple of other words here that I think uh, are interchangeable to the word promise. And I think I'm going to read all these verses right now. I I do confess that this topic is big and I I find it hard to, to share all that I'd love to share here this morning. Uh, So we're going to try to uh, hit some of the the key things as I would understand it. Verse 14 of Galatians 3, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet... If it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that which should be make the promise of non-effect. I'm going to stop reading there right now. We could go on and expound a lot on that. Here we have in verse 14, the blessing of Abraham. So to tie this thing together, we need to understand that Abraham's involved with his promise. Okay, And then this promise was made to the seed of of Abraham. And and we look at Romans 4, we see that anyone that enters into the covenant of faith is the seed of Abraham. So the seed of Abraham is much. But here specifically, it says that that seed was Christ. And we could, again, just spend the next hour looking at how God came to Abraham about five times. And there's maybe one exception to that, but every time he came to Abraham, he made a promise, he made a covenant. And that's another thing I wanted to point out. In verse 15, we have the word covenant. And that verse 17, we have the word covenant. So the word covenant and promise are used interchangeably here. I trust that, I, that, that you're following me. So we could say it could be the covenant of the Father. This, this pact, this, this agreement, this, this uh, coming together of God with man 
in the promise. And also, maybe throwing too many things in here together, the, the word covenant, which I understand to be the new covenant, was given 430 years before the old covenant was given Mount Sinai. And it was given very briefly, and, and, and that was expounded upon what we have the covenant today. So the, the, the New Testament, or the covenant, is centered around the promise of the fathers, I understand it, this morning. And uh, but maybe if you don't grasp it all, this is a topic I've looked at much, and, and uh, at least whet your appetite that you look into it more. Okay, so that's an invitation I want to give. And so, as I said, there, there was a promise given to, to Abraham, and that is the promise of the Father, and I understand it to be, have been given in three phases, and I want to give that to you this morning. And those, the first two phases, I think, are a type or analogy of the third phase, which uh, we have, we'll, we'll give you those three phases here. First of all, the first phase of the promise was that Abraham was to have seed. When that was given, Abraham, the first time it was given to him, he was about 90 years old, or I'm backing up on that, I think he was... 75 when he first asked to move from earth and then when it was given again when he was 90 years old and and uh, I don't have all these facts real straight I think he was 100 years old till actually uh, he received the promise of a son and so this all ties together in order for Abraham to to be able to have seed he, he needed to have a son and uh, there's some key factors there, so we'll, we'll come back to that. The second part of that, that, that first of all was brought to him in, in Genesis chapter 12 when he was asked to leave Ur, and he wanted to, to make a blessing out of his seed. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, God comes to Abraham again and gives him a promise. This was after... Uh, Abraham told Lot that, that, you know, there's too many cattle where we're at. You choose one spot and I'll choose the other. After, after Lot went down to, um, to Sodom or close to Sodom there, uh, God met with Abraham. He said, all this land I'm going to give to your, your seed or your descendant. So that's the second, second part, the second phase of the promise. And then the third phase of the promise, and here again, to be uh, enjoy just looking at carefully at those verses. But after God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, uh, and, and Abraham was faithful, he was willing to do this. God met with him again. This is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 15 to 18. I think I will maybe take the time to turn to this. This, this is every time there's a, a little more revelation on what God had in mind as he shared with Abraham. Genesis 22 and verse 15 says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, that because thou hast done this thing, hath not withheld thy son, an only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, 
and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of thine enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. This was the last time that the promise was given to Abraham. Now, I did want to mention this. Sometimes we have the word promise in plural, promises. And it's not talking about a lot of promises, but it's talking about the promise that was given more than once. Like I said, it was given about four times to Abraham. It was repeated to Isaac, and it was repeated to Jacob. But that promise uh, was again repeated, and we'll look at that just a little further down the road when the time of the promise came for the fulfillment of inheriting the second phase, which is the land of Canaan. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit. Now looking at phase one of the promise, there had to be a son. And maybe God didn't make that real clear, I'm not quite sure. It wasn't until afterwards, some of you know the story that uh, this thing just wasn't happening and, and, and Sarah gets involved. She said, now listen, you know, we're getting old and you know it's impossible for me to have a son, so why don't you take Hagar and, and uh, we can make this thing happen. I'm putting in my own words. We, since God promised a son and it's not happening, so we got to do something. And so we know the story and, and God... Uh, not God, Abraham had a son through Hagar. And uh, there's a typology there that uh, we could spend here again a good half hour looking at and, and seeing all that. But God came to him later and said, that's not what I had in mind. Through Sarah, you are to have a son. And... Uh, The conception of Hagar, which resulted in Ishmael, is a type of the law. And you can read that if you want to study it more in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, and also Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 down to the end of the chapter. It, it looks at, at um, Ishmael as a type of the law. And it helps me understand when, it, when Galatians talks about being under the law, that is talking basically about what took place there with Abraham and Hagar. And, and to sum it up in my understanding, and I, I invite your thinking on this and, and your uh, correction or whatever, it is trying to fulfill God's work and God's promise through human effort under the law. God... Uh, did not intend for the promise to be fulfilled through Hagar. It was through Sarah. Humanly speaking, it was an impossibility. Sarah was uh, a woman that there's something wrong that she was not able to conceive. Aside from that, she was 90 years old when she did conceive. So humanly speaking, it's an impossibility. And faith was the key element in order for Abraham to inherit the promise. And that's the, the one thing I want to really put emphasis on this morning. And we'll read a few verses out of Romans chapter 4 that ties that part together. 
We're going to break in here. About all Romans 4 could be read here, but here again, we're trying to just catch some of the key things here. Verse 17. I read on down through to verse 21. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, but he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, <clears throat> giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that he, what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So in other words, verse 17, uh, faith in the promise was believing the things which was not as though it already was. You can follow that. And that's through faith. And the reason it wasn't faith on faith, it was faith on a God that cannot lie. And you can go to Hebrews chapter 6 and you'll, you'll find that tied in there where, where God made a promise and Abraham, since he knew God and knew that God could not lie, because God said that Sarah was going to have a son, Abraham believed it because he knew God. Okay? And we know that Sarah laughed. And we know that there probably was some unbelief in that laugh when God sent those angels and told them they were going to have a son. But I, I'm going to read in Hebrews chapter 11 because Sarah's faith was a key element in this also. And the verses in Hebrews 11 is verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 11, 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Okay? And verse 12. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is in the sea, sure innumerable. So faith, it was nothing else but faith that gave Sarah the strength that was needed to conceive Isaac. So there's a lot tied into that and all the, the thing of what took place with Ishmael, and I think today the church is much affected by the offspring of Ishmael in what is uh, the Arabs and, and the Muslims, and that whole thing, it's a big picture, and we, we can't get there, but if you take some time to study uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, and especially Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, there's a, a typology or a uh, a parable there that ties into uh, we are either children of the flesh 
or we're children of the promise, as we have in Galatians 4, if, if you take time to look at that carefully. And this morning we can be living in the New Testament era and be functioning under Old Testament principles. And, and that, uh, that's a concern I have. So we go down the road 430 years later. And uh, I'm not sure if I should take the time to do that. I think maybe I will, just to see how this all ties together. In Acts chapter 7, as some of you know, Acts chapter 7 is where Stephen is sharing with his accusers the story of... of uh, the history of, of Israel, and uh, have it here somewhere. <clears throat> Verse 5, Acts 7, 5, and he gave him none inheritance in it, talking about Abraham, no, so not as much as to set his foot, and yet he promised that he would give to him a possession and to his seed after him when he was yet had no child. And uh, so those 400 years were in there. And in verse 17, And when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied to Egypt. And so... Going back to that, I want to take us to Numbers chapter 13 now, and we'll see the promise of the Father, phase two. Numbers chapter 13. Some of us are familiar with this story, some maybe not quite as much, but that, it ties into this whole thing this morning. Numbers 13, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every man, of every tribe, their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. So we want to emphasize the words that God gave to Moses. He said, Send those spies to check out the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. The promise. Does God lie? Was God going to give them the land of Canaan or not? Okay. This is important to understand this morning. And if you remember the story, those, those, 12 tri uh, those 12 spies went out, one from each tribe, and they came back. The end of Numbers 13, and they said, the land is good. Uh, there's lots of... Uh, it's a land of milk and honey, and, and they, they brought back those huge grapes and all that, said, nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And Caleb comes along, and he tells the people, he said that, you know, they're giants before us. We're like grasshoppers. Caleb, verse 30 and Numbers 13, Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. So we have ten men that are saying we can't there's giants there. There's two men, it was Caleb and Joshua, that said, let's go and do it. What was the difference? Ten men were going on human perception. They were going on how humans look at things. And two men were going on the promise of God. And I, the, the scripture says there was 
between the, is it the ages of 20, 20 and, and 60, there was 600,000 men that went out of Egypt. And this was here just a, a couple of weeks down the road from when they left Egypt. They sent these spies in there. Out of those 600,000 men, how many of them entered into the promised land? Anybody know? Two people. Those two people were Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because two, two men out of 600,000 believed the promise of the Father. And I, I did those numbers in my calculator. It's point zero 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 about four zeros or five zeros percentage of those that received the promise that actually inherited it. Why? Because two men understood that God cannot lie. And if God says something, then he's going to fulfill it, no matter what it looks like to us. And those two men believed it. They suffered the consequences of wandering around 40 years, and we could look at it. Maybe I'll look at verses 23 and 24, yet yeah, in Numbers 14. Numbers 14, 23. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me to see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit within him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherein he went, and his seed shall possess it. And of course, Joshua was the other one. I'd like to tie the New Testament into that and look at a few verses in Hebrews. You'll find in the, in the book of Hebrews who were promised coming up different times, and in my understanding, it's always talking about the promise of the Father. But, but it's key to us this morning, I believe. But I, I challenge you to look into these things more if you can't grasp it this morning. Verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 3. Or maybe I'll look at verse 10 also. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into rest. Verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So that is talking about specifically about the time when they did not believe the promise and, and they had to wander 40 years in the wilderness. That's a sin that God was grieved with. And verse 18, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And going on into chapter 4 and verse 1. Let us, let us this morning, therefore fear lest a promise, the Spanish says the promise, being left of us to enter into rest, and if you should seem to come short of it. So let us fear this morning that the promise that has been given to us of entering into rest, and, and that's a topic I could spend an hour on also, entering into rest and what that is. Maybe I'll have a chance to do that down the road. Verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 4. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So this morning the challenge for us is if we do not mix with faith the promise of the Father, then it's not for us. 
So we have phase two of the promise. And I run through that very quickly because I want to look at phase three. That's phase two is history. Phase one is history. Abraham believed in God even after he failed at first. He did believe and the promise was fulfilled. 600,000 men received the promise. Two believed and two received. They inherited the promise. Now, going back to, thinking on phase three, going back to Galatians chapter three, like I said, that to me ties the whole thing together in a way that we can understand. I want to look at verse 16 again. Now, to Abraham and, to, and his seed were the promises made. That word plural there is just not a number of promises, but the number of times the promise was given. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. So essentially, as I understand it, Christ came down and he laid aside, in a sense, his divinity. He never stopped being God, okay? Don't get me wrong. But he... he, he came here as a man that we can follow. And if he was a man that we can follow, he had to limit himself to the same things we have access to. Not sure if you're following me here this morning. And so the, the powerful life, the wonderful life that we see in Christ, he lived as a man. But he lived showing us what it was like to inherit the promise of the Father. Because it was made to him, okay? The promise was made to, to the seed of Abraham. And in verse 16, it says clearly it was made to Christ. So in my understanding, Christ was the, the first to receive the promise in, in the part that we're looking at now. And uh, here again, because of the clock and whatever else, uh, I'm not going to turn to it. But if you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Jesus went down to, to the Jordan River to be baptized and said, As he prayed, the Spirit came upon him as a dove. And he was filled with the Spirit. And then I also love to read in, in Luke chapter 4, it says, He returned from the wilderness. Well, first of all, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days fasting. It was the spirit that took him into the wilderness. And uh, he was faithful in that temptation. And it, it says he came back full of the spirit. And that's when he went into the synagogue there in Nazareth and, and uh, said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel and, and uh, to deliver the, those in bondage and the brokenhearted and et cetera, et cetera. The, the scripture has, has well, it talks about the birth of Christ a little bit. And it talks about, in, in Luke, it talks about when Jesus was 12 years old. Aside from that, the scripture does not say anything about the life of Christ until his baptism. And we don't know that he did have performed any miracles. So he, he might have, but we're not 
they're not recorded. And I believe in part, and this again is maybe an opinion, that the reason Scripture doesn't say anything more is because God wants us to follow the Anointed One. The word Messiah and the word Christ both mean the same. Messiah is Hebrew and Christ is, is Greek, New Testament. But they mean the Anointed One. That's what it means. And we're follow Christ. We're following the Anointed One. And from the time of his baptism, this was not an empty ritual. This was fulfillment of the promise, I understand it, that God the Father sent down the Spirit. And we have the Trinity here. We have the voice that's up there. And we have the Spirit coming in the form of dove. And we have Christ in person there. The Trinity, uh, we see very clearly the three parts of, of the Godhead working together there. So Christ came up from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. And, and from my understanding, that was 24-7 from there on until his death. Full of the Spirit, the Anointed One. And the miracles he did. And, and the ministry... One other thing I want to throw into this, because there's a lot of confusion about the Spirit. Do we pray for the Spirit? Do when do we receive the Spirit? And all those things. And there's been a lot of confusion among the churches. Let's say that Jesus had the Spirit from conception. And he never, to me, is, is what to us symbolizes the new birth. When we're born again, we receive the Spirit. But what Christ received when he was 30 years old and was baptized was an anointing, a power that he needed to fulfill his ministry. Did the disciples have the Spirit? Did they have the Holy Spirit before the day of Pentecost? I'm entering into some controversy here, maybe. And I say yes. They, they, uh, they ministered, they cast out devils, it, they healed. But when the promise of the Father came, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, the day of Pentecost, it was a power that they never had before. And that, we'll get to that in a little bit. So we have fulfilling of the promise in the person of Christ. When he was baptized, and then three and a half years of ministry, and his disciples are following him. But the promise was only for Christ. Okay? Those three and a half years. He received it. And he manifested. How do I say this? In my understanding, he showed us what it's like to re receive the promise of the Father. In the life that he lived. And his disciples looked on in awe. And they followed him, but there's so many times so often they came up short. So we have now the death of Christ. Three days later we have the resurrection. Forty days later we have the ascension. Ten days later we have the day of Pentecost. And we know Jesus died Disciples were lost. And then we know somewhere in that time, 
Those 40 days he was here on earth, different times he met with his disciples. And he met with them again just before his ascension. And he said, you wait. Don't do anything. And I, I throw this challenge out to us this morning. What would have happened if they would have ignored the command of Christ to wait in Jerusalem? They would have went out and started preaching. Time to get this thing started. They didn't do that. They obeyed. But there's 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost. What were they doing in those 10 days? Now, I think this is important for us this morning. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. As in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. And uh, verse 14, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So there's 11 apostles were there, continued with one accord. And then we go on to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This is my understanding of it. And here again, this could be stretching for some of us maybe. But I believe that they understood that Jesus had taught them that they should be praying and asking. And they tarried and they prevailed and they were there with importunity until they got what they were asking for. What, what happened the day of Pentecost was a, a direct result of persistent prayer of, of uh, 120 people that were one accord praying for God for this thing. What were they praying for? They were praying for the promise of the Father. So we have Jesus. He receives the promise of the Father for himself, and, and it was just for him. And now if you want to tie some more things together here in Acts chapter 2, verse 31. This is Peter in his message. It says, He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul should not be left in hell, neither the, his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all, we all are witnesses. Therefore being at the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, which he shed forth this, which you now see and hear. So Christ went up, and he went up, and he was at the right hand of the Father, and ten days after that happened, the time was right, and the day of Pentecost, and that plays into this whole picture, God had at all time that he received the promise of the Father, not for himself only, but for the church. And it, it's what we have. And we have basically the promise for the church, as I understand it, was an anointing upon the disciples, an anointing that enabled them to preach with power, an anointing that brought the presence of God in their midst, an anointing that brought people under conviction of sin, anointing that cleansed the, the people that were there that chose to repent. 
And a result of it, we have, what was it, 2,005 or 3,000, 5,000 souls that were added to the church. People that were sinners that came to Christ because of the promise of the Father. Now, we could say that the, this Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, and that after it came, now it is there for the church. And I would say exactly so. It is there for the church. But this morning, the question I have for me and I have for you is, are you endued with power from on high? Do you know what it is to be under the powerful, convicting power of the Holy Spirit? We have here in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the question this morning, and, and this is a, a question that we need to ponder and, and we need to answer, is the promise of the Father in our midst this morning. And going back, the reason I looked at phase one and phase two is there's a typology there. The blessing of Abraham or the promise of the Father is not something that's automatic. It's something that I believe that happens when God's people fulfill God's requirements. And the initial failure of Abraham was a failure in believing and waiting on God's supernatural power. And then we have the result of Ishmael. Okay, that was the failure of Abraham. Abraham understood that. And he came to a place where he believed that if God promised that he was going to have a son through Sarah, that you can look at Hebrews chapter 6, that it's impossible for God to lie. And since he said it, I'm going to believe it. And if I believe it, it's going to happen. Okay. The failure of Israel was a failure in believing the promise that they were to inherit the land of Canaan. And so you have 600,000 men dying in the wilderness and not receiving the promise. The failure of the church has been a failure in believing the promise of the Father and being impotent and sterile and delivering those that are in the bondage of sin. Now you can go to Luke chapter 4 where Jesus talked about the Spirit of the Lord upon me and has anointed me. He was quoting out of Isaiah 61. He said, in this day that this scripture is fulfilled. I need that. You need that. We, we have neighbors. I have a neighbor yesterday that came around and he came shirtless and he came with all kinds of filthy words. And I was, had been studying on, on this topic saying, is it possible for me to have anointing upon my life that brings him in the presence of God where he does not want to live that way anymore, he wants to repent. 
do we believe people like that can be saved? Do we believe that the, the power that was ev uh, first manifested in Pentecost, that it has happened time and time again in history, that the power of God came in such a way upon the church that lots of souls are brought into the kingdom? Do we believe that in the year 2020 that the promise of the Father can come upon us and that we could see a great harvest for God's kingdom. Now, if we answer that negative, then we're confirming what I already said about 600,000 men. I'm concerned, talking to myself, and I've looked at this thing a lot. Too often we are satisfied to try to accomplish God's work using our own resources, and it does not work. Any more than it worked for Abraham to come up with a son and his own resources. Any more it would have worked for Israel to try to go into Canaan. You know they tried that. After God said they're going to die in the wilderness, they said, no, we're not. We're going to go in there and we're going to conquer. And they went and they tried and they utterly failed. Why? Because they weren't doing it with the power of God. So we were the church is the call of the church is, is the call of being anointed with power from on high so that the fulfillment of, of John chapter 16, and I, I did want to point that out. We need to bring this thing to a close. But in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus said they're supposed to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, he said, which you have heard of me. And I think that could be broad. But I, I narrow it down especially to specifically the time right after um, Judas left. And there, there's some very special sharing that Jesus did with the 11 that were left. And for some reason, Matthew and Mark and Luke did not share those, but John did. You know, John wrote his gospel many years later. And there's three chapters, the second part of John chapter 14, and I believe pretty much the whole of John chapter 15 and most of John chapter 16, where Jesus is getting specifics, what to expect for the promise of the Father. And you study those chapters. And specifically, he says, you're better off that I leave because I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send the promise of the Father. And you're going to be better off because that power that you've seen walking in your midst is going to be in here. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is given the liberty that he is to have. It will happen. It, <clears throat> the preaching of the God's word will bring conviction of sin and of, of judgment and of God's righteousness. And that's a whole topic in itself also. So this morning, I'll start. Uh, I want to end here where we start out. Faith is the key element in understanding the promise of the Father. And understanding is essential to be able to believe it.
So the challenge, if, if I'm talking riddles to you this morning, study the topic of the promise of the Father. Look at all, especially the New Testament, and look at the, what God promised Abraham and how that all ties together. And, and look at what the promise really is and what it is to be for the church. And I can pretty much guarantee you'll be very blessed for doing it. God bless you.